Hi everyone, welcome to Toast and Topics. This week we have a special edition of the podcast coming your way. If you listened to our last episode, you'd know that Ben just returned from a nearly two-week journey to Africa. And though he's still significantly jet-lagged at the minute, he impressively agreed to a 9am recording of Toast and Topics. So welcome back, man. It's good to be back, Sachin. Uh, and I wouldn't miss a Toast and Topics recording for anything, um, except possibly a two-week trip to Africa. Uh, that seems like a valid reason to skip. <laughs> yes, that's an excused absence, Ben. Um, but really, the whole point of this episode is to discuss your observations from your trip to Africa. Um, and for our audience, while Ben was traveling on his adventure, I had to make myself at least feel like I was there. So I read a bunch of articles on different portions of Africa's economy and came up with a few questions on the key themes that I picked up. And so we're going to try a slightly different format in this episode where I'll be interviewing Ben. So I guess that means I'm in charge. Please go ahead and take the reins. So I wanted to first get started by just asking you about your trip. Uh, we haven't really caught up properly yet. So tell me more about where you were and what you were up to for the past couple of weeks. Yeah, it was a fantastic trip. It essentially involved road tripping through northern Tanzania and seeing a variety of very interesting wildlife in the process. We started in Arusha, which is a town that's right underneath Mount Kilimanjaro, and then went all the way up to the border with Kenya. Uh, we also got three days in Zanzibar, which is an island that is off the coast of Tanzania, and that was fantastic. And I can imagine that this wasn't perfectly smooth from start to end. So do you have any funny travel stories along the way? A few, but the one that I'll tell you happened on the very first day that we arrived in the country. Um, our flight landed at Mount Kilimanjaro Airport at about two in the morning. And we had kind of foolishly not made any arrangements for a place to sleep that night. We were just hoping that we'd be able to sleep in the airport. Well, as it turns out, the airport was extremely small and there wasn't anywhere for us to sleep. So at around 2.30 in the morning, we had this kind of awkward process of scrambling to find a hotel, um, which all happened to be very far away from the airport. Uh, and so that was a bit chaotic um, and at times a bit disconcerting, but overall it worked itself out pretty well. So I can't complain too much. That's good to hear. Um, and I think our audience would be totally disappointed if I didn't ask you this next one. Um, what sort of wildlife did you see out in Tanzania and Zanzibar? So everyone is probably expecting me to say that I saw lots of elephants, lions, cheetah, and so on. And of course I did see that. But uh, to break out of the you know classic African safari mold, I will tell you about the dolphins that I saw in Zanzibar. Basically, I was on a snorkeling trip. And as we were driving out to, or rather boating out to a coral reef, uh, we saw this pod of dolphins surface right by us. And our boat captain, like some military drill sergeant, just commanded us to all jump out of the boat and to get in the water to start swimming with these dolphins, which was great. But I had kind of forgotten how to snorkel. And so the entire time I was doing it, I was sort of, you know, hyperventilating and feeling like I was drowning. But uh, overall, that negative experience was canceled out by the fact that I got to swim with the dolphins. So um, I can't complain too much. It was pretty fun. <laughs> That's really cool. And I'm sure it's pretty hard to keep up with their swimming in the water. Yeah, they're um, speedy, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that sounds great. You know, I don't think that the pictures you sent me can really do this any justice. So I wish I was there in person to see it all with you. Well, I'll do my best to take you there. 
um, at the very least economically, which should hopefully be just as exciting as the lions, elephants, and dolphins. I hope so. We are an economics podcast after all, so I'm going to pivot this conversation to the topic of economics. Um, And I'll start off with a few stats on some of the key themes that I read about in Africa to just get us in the mood a bit more. The underlying message repeated by nearly every paper that I read is that Africa is a land of huge opportunity. But that said, they still have their own unique set of developmental challenges. To underscore this point, the region is home to one of the world's youngest and fastest growing populations, with the number of people expected to nearly double to 2.5 billion by 2050. But despite this, nearly 60% of Africa's population still lives in poverty, with per capita income growth averaging just about 1.1% per year. So on that note, I think a good place to start off this conversation is by talking more about the people of Africa. You know, what were some of your initial observations about employment, poverty, and the labor market? Yeah, the point that you make about population growth and per capita growth in income is the key one, I think. Visiting towns in Tanzania like Arusha and Zanzibar City, one of the things I was most struck by was the number of children. There are a huge number of young people in countries like Tanzania, and that poses a vexing problem for development. Even with robust economic growth, ensuring that GDP growth on a per capita basis is equally strong is a very challenging endeavor when population is growing by 2-3% to per year. Uh, And so as you already noted, Sachin, Africa is a land of huge opportunity, but the converse of that is that the continent still has a ways to go in its economic development. I think that one testament to that is drinking water. The entire trip I was drinking from water bottles because the infrastructure in Tanzania was just not in place to ensure that water is potable. On a macro level, GDP per capita in Africa is about $1,700 right now, and this number has not grown very much over the past decade. According to the World Bank, GDP per capita in sub-Saharan Africa in 2012 was only $1,800. And so, as you can see, the region is quite poor, and it's struggled to raise per capita incomes in a meaningful way thus far. And so what industries are there that can support Africa's growing population? Yeah, for now, much of Africa's population is employed in its agriculture sector. Uh, You know, many people have farms outside of their homes that they tend to. um, And this doesn't really generate a very robust standard of living. Um, Agriculture makes up 17% of GDP in sub-Saharan Africa, yet it employs 50% of the workforce in this region. Uh, The basic idea here being that while many people are involved in farming, this activity is relatively unproductive in comparison to other sectors. A more promising driver of Africa's economy is the services sector, which includes activities such as transport, financial services, and tourism. According to the World Bank, services comprised 47% of sub-Saharan Africa's GDP, but services make up only 39% of the workforce in the region, which indicates that services are a higher performing sector, as it commands a larger share of GDP than the share of workers employed in it. That suggests that Africa ought to move more people from the farms and into industries like services or manufacturing, um, and doing so will help to improve incomes. Yeah, and I think that another way to see income growth is via investment from large multinational corporations. Um, You know, these investments can provide the upfront capital to create businesses that can employ high-skilled workers, 
Um, and so on that note, in the major city centers of Tanzania and Zanzibar, did you see any large conglomerates offering major employment to the people in the region? Interestingly, the answer is not really, aside from in the tourism sector, where um, a lot of the major outfits that we were working with were owned by foreign investors. Um, to the extent that I saw foreign MNCs operating in Tanzania, it was generally to just advertise and sell their wares as opposed to setting up production chains within the country. Um, as of right now, much of the investment that is being poured into Africa is being done in order to develop the infrastructure of the continent as opposed to developing businesses that can connect to global supply chains. Um, I think that the greatest possible exception to this point is in the form of energy and mining. There are tons of multinationals operating in countries like Tanzania with the intent of integrating petroleum and rare earth sources with global markets. For example, just this past April, Tanzania signed a $700 million deal with three Australian companies to mine rare earths and graphite in the country. That's a really interesting point, and it actually perfectly aligns with another key theme in the papers that I read, which is Africa's role in the energy transition. And for context, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, Europe has cut energy imports from Russia quite substantially, um, and there's been greater anxiety about energy security across the world. Um, and so Africa has a huge opportunity to become a major player in global energy markets, particularly in oil and gas. So why don't you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Africa may be the long-term answer to Europe's gas and carbon problem. It is 13% of global gas reserves, which is only a touch less than the Middle East, and 7% of the world's oil, as well as vast green energy potential. Um, international energy firms are dusting off or drawing up new plans to produce liquefied natural gas, or LNG, across the continent. Um, for example, there are some 30 to $40 billion worth of LNG deposits in Tanzania and another $20 billion worth of them in Mozambique. The number of rigs operating in Africa, which is a leading indicator of exploration and production, is now at its highest level since 2019. Very interesting. And so, you know, obviously there are some negative risks with being overly reliant on oil exports as well as exports of other commodities, just given the volatile nature of their prices. So on the topic of energy, did you observe anything related to growth in renewables and or green energy? Yeah, Africa has a potential to be a massive producer of green energy. The region is sunny. There are spacious deserts, windy coasts, plains, and gushing rivers. These are all things that uh, make for a renewable energy powerhouse. But the key word here is potential. Thus far, the African continent has been a laggard in green energy, and it's just 1% of the world's installed solar and wind capacity, and only about 4% of the world's hydropower. The primary reason for this is that it's hard to store and export this kind of green energy, and there isn't a lot of demand for energy in Africa itself. Uh, moreover, marshalling the investment required to develop these resources has been a challenge. So on that note, I want to shift to talking a little bit more about the investors and the money that's being poured into these kinds of ventures, specifically from China, which has demonstrated um, significant interest in investing in many African economies through its Belt and Road Initiative. Did you see any form of Chinese influence while in Africa and in what way? 
Yeah, this is a very important topic to discuss. China has been the largest foreign investor measured by annual flows of foreign investment in Africa over the past 10 years. China is also Africa's largest two-way trading partner with trade hitting $254 billion in 2021, which exceeds by a factor of four US-Africa trade. Now, I didn't actually see a huge amount of evidence for Chinese investment in Tanzania. I've heard that China's investment influence is stronger in other parts of Africa, where there are more minerals available for extraction. But I was still interested to find that many of the largest buildings in Arusha, Tanzania, were constructed by Chinese investors, uh, at least according to the guide that we had driving us around the city. For example, a Chinese firm was contracted to construct the African Court on Human and People's Rights, which is headquartered in Arusha. Uh, And even though China's investment in other African countries may be more substantial, China has still invested a significant amount in Tanzania. Uh, China's total FDI stock in the country is $1.8 billion. And what exactly does China want out of Africa? Yeah, I'd say that there are four really overarching strategic interests for China and Africa. Uh, The first is natural resources, particularly oil, gas, and rare earths materials. Energy security has been a longstanding concern for China, which does not produce very much oil and LNG within its own territory. And more than that, China is by far the world's largest producer and refiner of rare earths materials. And so having access to these resources in Africa as well has been important for the country. Uh, The second reason that China is investing in Africa is political legitimacy. Strengthened Sino-African relationships help to raise China's own international influence, and they sort of cement China's um, aspirations to be the leader of the quote-unquote global south. The third reason that China is investing in the region is that Africa has a very large potential export market. Um, This is going to be something with a long-term payout. As of right now, China's exports to Africa are about $184 billion dollars. By comparison, China's exports to the United States are about $450 billion right now. But the key point here is that as Africa continues to grow economically, um, China's exports to the continent are also more than likely going to grow in proportion. Uh, And so I think China is making a long-term bet on the continent at the moment. The final reason that China, I think, is so keen to invest in African infrastructure is that, as we explained in episode three, China really loves investment in infrastructure, and it's done so to uh, perhaps an overly extreme extent uh, within China itself. As a result of that, there are many Chinese construction firms that simply are looking for projects that they can perform that aren't going to be redundant. And Africa, which really lacks a lot of infrastructure right now, is a very good target for these kinds of projects. And so you can be thinking of China's investment in Africa as almost a way for China to unload its excess infrastructural capacity. That all intuitively makes sense. And I'd assume that this isn't just a one-way relationship either. So conversely, what does Africa get out of China's presence there? Yeah, well, as I was saying earlier, Africa is a continent that's in great need of infrastructure. For example, 43% of African households still lack electricity. And basically, China can provide the capital and know-how to fill that gap and ensure that people have access to these basic goods. Um, Also, to some degree, many African leaders hope that China will interact with them in ways that the United States and other Western governments do not. 
often financing from Western sources in Africa has come with strings attached, i.e. you can get this billion dollar loan, but in order for you to actually receive it, you need to also show tangible improvements in rights and democracy. With Chinese investment, there isn't really that much of that kind of sermonizing, except maybe as it relates to the status of Taiwan. And so that's another reason that this investment is compelling. But whether Chinese investment has resulted in jobs for the local population in Africa is a key point, and it's also a point of contention. Many have critiqued Chinese Belt and Road projects in Africa for essentially bringing in Chinese workers and having only limited local participation. Um, on the contrary, though, a 2017 study by McKinsey found that 89% of employees at Chinese companies in Africa were African, which suggests that Chinese-owned businesses employ several million people in Africa, which is not a trivial number. And so I think it still sort of remains to be seen whether China's investments in Africa result in meaningful good jobs for the population in the region. Um, there is, however, this issue that many refer to as debt trap diplomacy. China's infrastructure spree in Africa has not come cheap, and many African countries are now saddled with debt incurred by accepting a swathe of Chinese projects. Take Zambia, which defaulted on some $17 billion of debt in 2020 and counts China as being its largest bilateral creditor. So overall, China's investments in Africa have been important, but the debt risks that they carry are significant, and we're going to be watching the consequences of that over the next decade. That makes sense. So let's conclude with talking about the future. What's next for Africa in order to realize its full potential? Yeah, to reiterate, there are really exciting levels of opportunity in Africa as it now stands. The continent's population is the fastest growing in the world, and this population stands on the cusp of moving from low productivity agricultural industries and into higher productivity manufacturing and services, which could very well lead to an economic boom. But there are some issues that are going to need to be addressed in order for this to happen. Uh, the first is that Many countries in Africa need more reliable and transparent legal frameworks. According to the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index, Sub-Saharan Africa is some of the lowest levels of rule of law in the world. And it's very important for the governments in the region to be perceived as more reliable, to foster entrepreneurship by locals, and also to promote more foreign direct investment. Um, infrastructure investments are also going to be key. Africa is still a region that could benefit from substantially more infrastructure. The fact that many households remain without power is just one testament to this. For growth to improve in Africa, it's important that reliable transport and power can be ensured for most of the population. And it's on that foundation that the continent will continue to grow. And then finally, the above two factors that I've discussed are going to lead to further integration with global supply chains. Um, basically, investment will be able to pour into the African continent, which can then result in the development of industries that are going to be higher productivity and more linked to the world economy. And at that point, I think that growth is generally going to beget more growth in Africa. Well, Ben, I think that this was a very informative conversation. I, for one, have learned a lot about Africa, and I can see that you were highly observant during your entire trip there. Um, you do know that this was supposed to be a vacation, right? So I hope you also feel fully rested and relaxed and that I didn't make you work too hard during your trip. Huh, not at all, Sachin. I'm happy to be back, and I'm looking forward to our next episode where we will discuss recent developments in Ukraine.
Thank you for listening to this special edition of Toast and Topics. If you like what you heard, please rate and follow us on Spotify as it helps more people find our podcast. While you're at it, follow us on Instagram too, at Toast and Topics. And finally, if you made it this far, you're probably willing to share it with a friend or family member. Give it a try and let's see what they think.